Dear brothers and sisters in Christ, um, there's been an interaction that I have longed for for, well, most of my life. I'll, I'll even admit that now it's sort of a fantasy for me. I, I long to be used or called by God to do something really big. And it's not to say that I'm complaining about what I'm doing now. But I'm talking about really, really big, so big that God would have to come face to face in some way to tell me to go do it. That I would have to have daily interaction to tell me how to do it. Some sort of powerful thing that I couldn't just imagine that I knew for sure I was interacting with God. And I expect that for most of us, if not all of us in this room, for a lot of us who are watching online, that is something that's crossed our mind too. We, we have a part of us that wants to interact with God and, and wants it to be so super clear and happen with frequency. When, when I went the one time I went with Kairos, we were with the prisoners out of Branchville. And a young man requested to talk to me as a pastor. So we went off by ourselves and we talked. And he wanted to ask me about dreams and visions. What was the difference between a dream and a vision? And I explained this simply, one you're awake and one you're not. And he goes, does that still happen? I go, well, I'm certain that it does. He goes, I, I would be happy if that would happen to me. I mean, it doesn't have to happen often. Once a week would be good. And I was like, yeah, once a week would be good. I, and I told him, I don't know if you should hold on to the once a week part. Just know that God hears you and God will find a way to interact with you. And when you think about the Bible, I mean, what is the vast majority of it? It is the record of at least the big interactions between God and man, the ones that he wanted preserved for perpetuity so that you could hear about them. I don't know that it's comprehensive, but I think um, it gives you a sense that, that these kind of interactions don't happen always for an individual once a week. Now, for Adam and Eve, it happened all the time. And there's a whole bunch of stuff, a whole bunch of gripes I have with Adam and Eve, and we're going to talk about it once we meet. But one of the things they had that I don't is God walked around like, like he was their next-door neighbor, at least their next-door neighbor that they actually see. And they talked, and they interacted, and, and it was just normal to interface with God. And then came the other thing that I have a gripe with them about, and that is that they did disobey, and they did change the situation, and they did change me. But if you notice, the, the face-to-face interaction with God did not just go blink, gone, as soon as they sinned. 
Now, they had to talk with God, and God set them up, and God explained to them their new life. And and even with Cain and Abel, which I consider to be sort of the next story, I'm sure still while Adam and Eve are alive, God wasn't gone. God interacted with Cain. But when you move on from there, it becomes not so clear that God interacted face-to-face with people anymore. There's that one enigmatic story. It's just a line. Enoch walked with God. I don't even know what that means. Did he see God and walk with God, or did he just obey God and walk with God? And by the time you get to Noah, Noah people seem to know him. Tried to make a pun there. I mean, the world had become out of touch with God. And I'm not so certain that Noah had any interactions with God until God needed him to do something big. To build a gigantic boat nowhere near water. You need to have a face-to-face with God if you're going to do something as nuts as that. But soon afterwards, nothing again. Abraham, who still would have been a contemporary with Noah, he didn't seem to know who God is. God chooses him. God interacts with him. He acts on what God says. But he didn't have a clue about him before that. You go by Noah, you get to Jacob. He's got two visions and one very strange wrestling match with God, and that's it. And then after that, how many? Any? Certainly we don't know about it. Not for quite some time. The next big interactions happen with with Moses. Of course, he has got a terribly big job to do. And, And so he does have the interactions. And one part, it says that Moses spoke with God like a man speaks to his friend. And I am super jealous of that. And then he says on the mountain to God, I want to see you. I want to see your face. And God tells him, no, we can't do that. However, I'll put you in the cleft of the rock and I'll walk by you and declare my name. And you can see me from behind. And why? People's sin had changed them. It changed them physically. And that change, that change is enough to separate us so that we don't have the face-to-face. Not much. Not that we should expect it. Later, Isaiah... He has a sort of face-to-face. He, he's really having a vision. So he is protected from direct contact with God by the fact that he's not there. But he has a vision where he sees God. And even in the vision, what's his impression of him being there? He says, woe to me, for I am a man of unclean lips. And I live amongst people of unclean lips. And I have seen the Lord Almighty. It wasn't necessarily a pleasant thing for a sinful person to see God, as cool as that would be. 
And then we go, you know, prophets have interactions, not necessarily face-to-face interactions. And then it goes quiet for over 300 years until we come to Jesus. And Jesus becomes, once again, kind of like Adam and Eve had in the garden. For, for almost 30 years, he walked the planet. People didn't quite understand who he was. And it's not until the end of his ministry that it becomes face-to-face again, miracles and signs, and yet the disciples don't seem to have it all register. I don't know what's wrong with these guys. I mean, how dumb can you be? But I'm looking at it in hindsight. They're, they're experiencing it firsthand, and it, it just is hard. For, for us to see God when he's interacting in our time. And then we come up to the event of today. The transfiguration. What's it for? Moses and Elijah show up. And I want you to realize that Moses and Elijah did not go to this mountain from heaven. They have not been cavorting with God for all this time. Moses, 1,500 years in the grave. Elijah, more than six. They had been in Sheol. Their interaction with God has been probably nothing. They represent a whole group of people who trusted in God who are waiting for the atonement for sin. And so they're brought into this because something big is going to happen. It's going to change their situation. Jesus obviously needed to be there. I don't know what all happens to him, but he needs to have some sort of strength because he's going to do the biggest thing ever. And even for God, this is a huge thing. And then Peter, James, and John. Why are they there? Are they the leaders? That might be the reason. Are they the people who have the weakest faith of the group? That might be the reason. They get selected for whatever reason, and up the mountain they go. And Peter, when he first experiences this, is absolutely giddy. You know, wow, Moses and Elijah and Jesus transfigured, and we'll bring, we'll build you some huts. We'll just Stay up here. This is cool. And then the cloud comes. And I don't know how they knew, but they knew. They were going to get very close to uh, a direct direct appearance with God. The cloud would shelter them, but something about them told them, you aren't going to take any chances here. Hit the dirt. And the dirt they hit, and they just hear it. They definitely hear it, and it isn't until Jesus touches them and says, don't be afraid, that they raise their head and they see nothing but a normal hilltop. What was that for? I'm not exactly sure what it all did for them, but they would be coming down the mountain and walking into a situation where 
they would behave very poorly, Peter especially, and they would see something that they did not anticipate seeing, could not anticipate seeing, and it would seem to them completely wrong. Jesus, their friend, the Son of God, which they have declared, crucified on a cross. What is right about that? Well, we know the answer, and they would too eventually, but at the moment, they did not. They simply struggled, and and it no doubt took seeing or seeing Jesus transfigured and hearing that voice to make it through. And afterwards, when Jesus would finally be raised again and, and then ascend into heaven, you're back to something different again. God's interaction through the Holy Spirit, powerful, transformative. The disciples went from being bubbling fools, for the most part, to transforming the world. The Holy Spirit fell on others, too, everybody who bore the name of Christ. And there were powerful things that made them successful, despite, despite intense persecution. Is that just first century stuff? Some churches formally teach that that is first century stuff. Holy Spirit doesn't do that anymore. We don't see God anymore. We read about God. That's what we get. But I tell you what, we have no interest at all. You should have no interest at all in faked or forced interactions with God. That's no good. You don't want that. You want the genuine stuff, and if you don't get the genuine stuff, then you'll just have to wait. A lot of people in our world today, they have a phrase. I'm sure you've heard it. I'm spiritual, not religious. You ever hear that? What that means, I think, in the majority of cases, is they said, I don't need to be told anything about God. I'll go find it out for myself. I'll go look in various places, and it ends up being various very dangerous places. Things that border on the occult or are absolutely the occult. Horoscopes. Don't go there. Ouija boards. Definitely don't go there. Mediums. Spiritists. Tarot cards. Even something that seems as benign as a palm reader, it all has its roots in, in interacting with God's enemy, the demonic. And it lays open a dangerous place. Even faking or forcing the Holy Spirit, you know, is... is is nonsense and not necessary. But do understand how God interacts with you all the time. 
you are, if you, and you can test this yourself, do, do you believe Jesus' story of his death and resurrection? Do you, do you believe the promise of forgiveness of sins? That isn't because you were taught that. It isn't because there's logic behind it. It's because the Holy Spirit has chosen you. And if you've been baptized into Jesus' death, then you have been baptized into Jesus' body. You are part of the body of Christ. Now, I realize that that very literal spiritual truth does not appeal to the senses. I don't feel like part of Jesus' body. But you are, and this is how you might experience it. I mean, the important part is when you stand before God, Jesus, God's going to see Jesus' righteousness in you. That part is the part you can't give up. That's what you really, really want. But the other half of that is that Jesus continues to do his work through you as long as you are here. And you might not notice it at all unless you start to do things that are clearly out of your league, you know, over your head. And when you know you are way over your head in this situation and God still makes it happen, then you will see that it isn't you, it is him. Similarly, that we are the temple of the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit and Jesus are, you know, one God, so indivisible in that way. But the Holy Spirit in particular pulls at us, and when we want to wander away into sin, and when we want to separate ourselves from from word and sacrament and from fellowship of God, it is the Holy Spirit who's going to dog your behind and you will experience that dogging. It is the Holy Spirit who will be transforming you and as you do notice that you change over the course of time, it's not from being enculturated, it is from being connected to the Holy Spirit. And then there's the tools of both of these, in particular the scripture, that when you do avail yourself to sit down and, and just be a student of the scripture, you will find, I found, over the course of time, it's not just reading a book. It is God teaching you. Now, there are some elements of just reading and normal traditional learning, but over top of that, very personally, there is God teaching you. And figuring out that that happens really matters. And today my microphone is going to drive me ape. There are reasons why that really matters. Before you figure out that you are actually interacting with the living God. You basically have a religion. That's what you have. I mean, you may legitimately be connected to Jesus. Nothing, nothing wrong there. 
But for you, you, you don't feel it. Don't know why it's doing this? Yeah. Maybe it's because the message is very important, and I do think Satan can inhabit technology. But um, until you figure out that you have a real interaction with Jesus, you are in a place where it's very easy to leave it. You are in a dangerous place where you could throw it away. And so it becomes a matter of, of being secure first, but also realizing that you have a life that is here for God. As long as you are here, you've got a God-given, God-given purpose. And you figure that out, and once you figure it out, you are probably good. There's no way that you're going to fall away then. And you're still going to be just like me. I want more. I want bigger. I want to go to the transfiguration. I want to go and have a vision of heaven, even if it is a crummy job that comes out of it. You want that interaction with God, and there's nothing wrong with that because the limited interaction we, we have right now, the interaction that's limited by sin, that's not forever. In fact, that's really temporary. For you, just maybe the rest of your life, unless God's, some, God's got something big for you. But when you leave it, you will have an interaction that's far better than anybody living has ever had, including Adam and Eve. So try to be patient with that. But also make use of what you have. Give God the chance to show you he is there for it is critical for the time you still have. And remember that in Jesus' name, amen.